0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of indefenseofplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? Today, I've got something super interesting for you because it's about botanical gardens, living collections, and plant conservation, and how all of these things meet to both inform the public, get people excited about plants, but also do something for the conservation of plants. Joining us to talk about this is Sean Lemire. He's the collections and conservation manager at the Huntington Library, Art Museum, and Botanical Gardens. And let me tell you, if you've never been, make an effort to go. It is one of the most beautiful gardens I've ever been to, and there's species growing there that, you know, little old me from the Northeast could never imagine seeing in person, at least not without spending tons of money to get there. But I don't want to spoil any of the fun. Sean is really thoughtful, really dedicated, and has an amazing job to tell you about. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado. Here's my conversation with Sean LaMeyer. I hope you enjoy. All right, Sean LaMeyer, it is so great to have you on the podcast. You're from one of my favorite botanical gardens. But before we jump into that, let's start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Hey, Matt. Yeah, my name is Sean LaMeyer, and I'm the Collections and Conservation Manager here at the Huntington Library, Art Museum, and Botanical Gardens. That's excellent. And what brought you to this position in a bigger sense? Where did you find your love for plants? I've thought about this quite a bit. You know, I was raised (laughs) in
1: in West Los Angeles in a very urban setting, but I had a great uncle that loved cacti, and I spent a lot of time as a youth going down to San Diego. He lived down in Fallbrook. And I'd go down and look at all those cacti, and he'd go out to the local deserts, and I'd go out with him, and it was just—I think something happened at a like through osmosis at a <laughs> young age. And the other person was my grandmother. She grew up in a farm in Indiana, and you know, for her, growing her own food was just something you did. And hmm. I was a couple generations removed from that, but, but we still grew our own tomatoes in the summer, and we still you know ate out of our garden. And I there's something about that I think had an impact uh, when I started falling in love with plants right around
0: my senior year in
1: college. Nice. Year. Nice.
0: Yeah. So it was kind of always percolating in the background but then, you know, dive into education you're like, yes, this is what I want to do.
1: Yeah, it was, yeah. And once I found plants, I knew that I had hit something that was going to be important to me because I was really drawn to the people that I was meeting in the field and I absolutely just loved all the questions that nice. were being asked around plants and I just I I couldn't escape wanting to know more.
0: Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome and I think we're we're cut from a similar cloth. It's you meet people that are all in and I could just, I mean, I do it anyway. You hit the play button and just go, I will listen to you talk about whatever interests you in that moment. And people always get afraid of rambling too much. I'm like, but that's the beauty of it. This is where those niche interests really just hit their stride. Yeah. And I think of this
1: era of what you want to call plant blindness or wherever you're going to, you know, the average person may be walking by a tree and not looking at it on the street. It's so important, I think, for the next generation to somehow
0: get their hands dirty and appreciate, you know, the green world around us. For sure. And, you know, you're in an interesting position, geographically speaking, me coming from the Northeast where winters dominate. Right. Uh, Your climate (laughs) zone opens you up to a lot of amazing possibilities. And it's a cool introduction to be kind of born and raised in that because, you know, I can take care of a succulent, an aloe, agave, whatever you want to call it, and be like, oh, I'm doing pretty good. And then I go to Southern California, I go, oh, that's how these plants are supposed to look. So do you, having grown up in it, have a sense for just, oh, these are plants that people are growing on their windowsills in New York or Indiana, and here I am with this beautiful thing growing in my backyard? I completely understand.
1: (laughs) I completely understand this, and I'm so grateful. I have a rockery in my front yard uh, where I live in Los Angeles, and I'm just so grateful that I rarely freeze (laughs) And if sometimes I get a hot day, I have to put shade cloth over a cacti or something. But by and large, I'm so grateful that I can grow so much. And that was the same, I think, realization that started here at the Huntington. Remember, Henry Huntington was from upstate New York. Oh, nice. He's from your part of the woods. That's awesome. And I think when he came to California and and found a horticulturalist that advised him and he heard he could grow anything here, including (laughs) orange trees, I think something, a light went off and that's when it started.
0: Yeah. and. And I think it really, truly shows because walking through your grounds, I'm just bewildered. You couldn't do it in a day. You couldn't do it and really appreciate it even if you had a week. So you're very fortunate to be there all the time. But the, the beautiful thing about the Huntington Library, Art Museum, and Botanical Gardens is you do a lot. There's a lot of things focused on plants, but I can also see where that's overwhelming. So where do you specifically fit into everything that's going on in this beautiful place?
1: Sure. So I oversee all of the living plant collections, but I really stay focused on, on those collections that have higher conservation value. Mm. That's the short answer. So I'm interested in every living plant that's in our collection that's accessioned, but I'm more interested in those plants um that have a higher um that, that need help in the wild. That's probably the best way to say it. That's fair. And uh I'm all over the map in terms of projects that I'm indirectly involved with or sometimes directly involved with. Um, but you, as you might guess, they're, we, we focus on, on some of our core collections that are kind of iconic for us, and they include cacti and orchids and cycads and aeroids. And these are exotic plants to us largely, mm. but they're, they're plants we've made a deep commitment to over the years as core collections. And so we're slowly um, and methodically building up Uh, research and conservation programs around these living collections so that they serve as the foundation as we move forward. Um, So that's what I'm focused on. I'm focused on the living collections and how they can, how we can leverage them for education, for aesthetics, and, and ideally how we can leverage them so that the plants and the wild somehow benefit from them being here. Like, and, uh, And I can go into that a little bit more if you like.
0: Yeah, sure. Uh, You know, it's an interesting thing to hear it spelled out that way, because to me, as a nature nerd growing up and someone that's kind of always enjoyed going to botanical gardens, the idea of a plant collection ex situ, I guess we'll call it, and conservation just go hand in hand. I mean, even at the core level of it being just purely exposing people to the breadth of what's out there and giving them an appreciation. To me, that's still a conservation mindset. But when we talk about conservation value within a collection, I have come to appreciate how much botanical gardens have evolved over the years from going from these like a few specimens sort of stamp collection mentality to something that, like you said, can really benefit these plants in the wild. And do you care to unpack that a little bit? Because I think people have skewed visions based on their background or perspectives on on what that means. So we we decided early on, and this is before I've
1: been here, I've been here about 20 years. Before I got here, we would be an ex situ. Anything we do would have like our conservation horticulture, what we call it, would be, and all of the programs around it would be ex situ in focus, meaning we would grow these plants outside of their natural habitats mm. and um, maybe have insurance colonies if you wanna see it that way. Hmm. But we never have really been involved with in situ or like you know owning a piece of habitat or working sure. with the Nature Conservancy to help repatriate some of these plants. That's just not something we've done yet. And I'm leaving that door open. Sure. But I think where we can really be valuable is in using these very unique collections that we're growing with the horticulturalists that know how to grow them. And then working on protocols for, for instance, exceptional plant species, those species that don't have seed that can be stored by conventional Mm. methods, working on those protocols and then sharing the knowledge out. I think that's where we're going to be of most value if we can share kind of a knowledge transfer, yeah, um, based on our collection. And I think we're starting to really get the hang of that with some of the partnerships we have uh, globally, where we're able to pursue technologies that are kind of niche for us around our collections. For instance, cryobiotechnology, Ooh. and then develop technologies that we're sharing with other partners, with the hopes that they will take these <laughs> and implement them, right, and I think that's how we're going to be of most value from a conservation standpoint.
0: Yeah, that's exciting. And of course, the goal should always be to restore what has been lost or make an attempt, like you said, to get plants back out in the wild. But conservation has to be multifaceted. It can't be a single focus. This is the only way to do it. We need a lot in our portfolio. And I think these ex situ collections that you can learn from and experiment with and, and like you said, kind of build up a database that can be shared with others to do the same thing. That is also a vital part. The other side of that coin, right? Is, is keeping these plants. And the other part of it too is, you know, rightfully so seed banks get a ton of attention. They're very sexy. It's an easy concept to understand seeds store well, but you mentioned it, not all of them do. And I've had people on here talking about cryopreservation in the past, but even then, the amount of skill and resources necessary to do that isn't on the table for a lot of smaller institutions. And so this sweet spot you have found, I think is a vital sweet spot for bigger picture plant conservation as a whole, but just that data generation for the uncountable unknowns we have for most plant species. Like, I, It's so great to hear sort of, carving off a specific niche in that way.
1: Right. So this is one of our tools in our toolbox that we really hope to expand upon. And we're really lucky to have someone early in their career, a professional, a dedicated person on staff here. And I'll tell you, it wasn't easy finding someone <laughs> going, when we're going to create this program, but it started with the tissue culture program that we were using for, to propagate. And we, we took that and we, we drew a professional to this program that was able to add cryopreservation. And in the course of about five years already, the other approach I really liked is we give her a variety of core groups in our collection and we let her kind of find out where, which groups might be easier to pursue. Hmm. And it turned out there were a handful of woody plant groups, which I had no idea we'd be chasing woody plants. (laughs) That's exciting. And in a bunch of (laughs) uh, like succulent monocot groups, which, you know, so we're kind of all over the place with our target taxa. But it's so exciting to see and the relationships we've built. She app she happens to be from Europe and she speaks fluent Spanish. And we've Ah. one of the byproducts of this is we're building some really meaningful relationship with Spanish speaking partners. Awesome. And um, and so it's it's great to see that really unfold.
0: Yeah, kind of crossing borders, getting around people that historically would have been a little bit more either marginalized or just siloed into their own world. But opening up this this pool of resource availability and collaboration, which I think is vital to conservation, no one can do this by themselves. I mean, a lot of individuals are putting in just stellar efforts, but like we have to work together on all this stuff. Right, and partnerships are key, and
1: that's something we really hope to expand upon. We just recently kind of adopted a meta collection policy, hmm. uh, so that we we see our core collections as part of a larger. You know, global group of collections with shared resources. So I think we'll continue to seek out these partnerships based around these target collections that we'd like to pursue. You know, research on, um, and and move forward. And we're we're
0: doing that right today. Yeah. And I think we'd like to do more of. Excellent. Well, I mean, call to action for anyone listening. But <laughs> I want to come back to something you said about you know the the mentality of kind of tinkering to see what sticks. Right. And and things came out of this that were unexpected, but. It kind of relates to something you said earlier where you are doing this ex situ which means okay you've got a very favorable climate but it's not the habitat of most of the species you're dealing with and is there an element of like we just kind of have to work with what's going to work instead of trying to force a bunch of things that aren't i mean that seems obvious to say it that way but uh, i think a lot of people think gardens oh you can make anything work not necessarily
1: not necessarily at all and uh, the first thing I think of is like in the tissue culture process, we have to harden plants off when mm. they go back to the nursery, and that's when we lose a lot of plants. It's very difficult to do that hardening off phase, uh, even if you got the recipe right and you can, you know, propagate something in vitro. Um, but the answer is no, you're right. it's not <laughs> it's not that easy. Um, and since you mentioned tinkering, I will say, you know we tried with we tried working with Camellia and we didn't find immediate success. Camellia hmm. was one of our you know long-standing core collections, and there's been a demand to work with Camellia. Um, but we've really you know need to spend some more time with that group. But we did find success with Magnolia, and and because of that, we've been working with the Magnolia Society. And I know you've spoken to Emily and some of the people oh, yeah. in that group. And we've also found some success with Agave, so we're working with Agave oh, wow. and working with Desert Botanical Garden some staff over there on some very unique agave plants some new species that were described um we're working with avocado now that's Whoa. a great thing that impacts food security yeah and uh, th- there's a whole story there on why avocado germplasm needs um <laughs> new technology to kind of, you know to protect it to yeah. safeguard it yeah. especially
0: with laurel wilt on its way west <sighs> so it's extremely yeah. terrifying to think of what laurel wilt is doing but has the potential to do or undo i guess would be a better way of putting it but you know so it's on the industry's mind trust me yeah and (laughs) whenever you get an industry (laughs) you could say that Mm -hmm. like oh there will be funding (laughs) yeah (laughs) but for even some of the obscure tax, i mean like even camellia you know if you've been to the southeast camellias are a dime a dozen but you 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 hear that and you scratch your head go like why camellia so is this something that Like, how do these decisions start to flesh themselves out? Obviously you want to see what works, but you know, what made camellia on your radar? What, what puts different groups on your radar in your position personally? Right. So we had a kind of a, a system where we would wait things. And if we don't have
1: access to seeds Mm. and we were thinking of some uncommon camellia species or even cultivars that are in danger of going extinct, you know, Yeah. um, that's in a whole nother conversation, you know, <laughs> yeah. whether it's a rose or an orchid or a camellia. Um, but yeah, we, we usually weight it by how common is it in the trade? Mm. Are we the only one that has it? Have we had trouble propagating it by traditional means? Um, and is it like, how important is this group to, to us historically? You know, so all of those things are weighted, you know, and then you get a score and then we can figure out like, okay, we camellia was just decided as a group that would be advantageous. If we could propagate material in vitro, mm. um, and that's that's been a challenge. But like I said, we've been able to do that with magnolia, and with that, that led to the uh, cryopreservation protocol of magnolia ascii. Ooh, down in, uh, nice. and that was a, that's huge. Yeah. So magnolia was a bit unexpected, but and what we've learned with <laughs> magnolia, we've we've been able to leverage. I should say we, you know, Dr. Fogato, with with her work with avocado. Nice. So it's the woody plant groups have been really nice, and now we're in, working with oak too. Awesome. And and what, since we're talking about prior preservation, we're talking about shoot tips. So, mm. little one millimeter <laughs> dissected out shoot tips yeah. that are preserved uh, in liquid nitrogen. So it's it's
0: sometimes hard to it's hard for me even to get my head, wrap my head around that sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've even physically seen some of those specimens and been like, "What? <laughs> this is yeah. where we're at. This is where we're at, huh? This is how we yeah. figured out how to do things." But I, I love that aspect of the unexpected, because it sounds to me like there's a lot of potential for one group to teach you a lot of things, good and bad, about another group, and you never know what you could pick up. So one conservation project could set the spark for you know, however many others. And I think that's exactly
1: right. Agave and aloe, I think we paired together, and we've worked with some al- aloes from Africa, and um, we would love to have an impact on that group with cryobiotechnology, um with,
0: with what you said taking lessons learned from agave sure um i mean the good news is is there's a lot of ones common ones to play with
1: to yeah right and we have a, a tremendous collection of ala so <laughs> yeah. it's like it, it makes sense you know this this is a group we should be working with and the other thing is we're we're trying to approach these projects in a scaled fashion so that we're working both with a regional partner a domestic partner and a global partner. We'd like Mm. to do this in a scaled fashion so that, you know, there's a local Island barberry, um, Berberus that uh, we've, the local biologists plant biologists have brought to our attention that needs help. Um, It's not, you know, we're not, they're not able to propagate it via seed very well. So it's something that really might benefit from cryobiotechnology, And that would be great if we can work with California native plants as well. That would really be nice if we have, local impact and then also continue to focus on things like magnolia ascii, which is from you know the florida panhandle
0: yeah but i mean it's got to be multifaceted and and you know this is kind of something you hinted at with meta collections is this idea of sharing and having representation of these materials at different gardens because how many acres do you have in total there so we have over 200 acres acres okay. but, Uh about half of it
1: is open to the public that's the easy oh, way wow. to do it yeah
0: okay yeah. but even then you know 200 acres is a lot but it's still finite right and so there's no way you could do it all with every species you want to do it with right
1: right and uh so space is definitely you know a limiting factor there's no question um and we have to consider that as we want to for instance we have a fantastic collection of let's go back to aloe. Mm. You know, much of our collection is grown actually indoors or grown Mm. out in a nursery setting because they won't do well in a display in the desert garden. And so we have a limited amount of space. So we have to be very purposeful when we grow a collection. Um, And we have to be purposeful if we want to grow it deep, meaning do we want different clones, different genetic clones of the same species, or do we rather broaden it out and just try to maximize species diversity? So we think about these things um, with these core groups in mind, such as aloe and agave and, you know, all kind c- cacti, cacti is a huge one for us as yeah. well.
0: Yeah. Right. So when you're thinking about this at, at the planning stage, right, you want these conservation collections to be meaningful and, and have a role in the conservation of a species. What kind of criteria beyond just the ability to tinker with it, I guess, or experiment sure. with it, do you have to choose to make sure that it is truly being an effective conservation collection? I'm thinking in the context of like genetic diversity, for instance.
1: Right. So this is an area we focus on, and we actually have a molecular biologist Ooh, on staff. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and that's at that, he's our chief research botanist. And these are the types of questions we'd like to address. Right now, we're doing it with niche groups. He's working on Diune right now. Mm. So he's working on cycad phylogenomics. Um, and with cycad now, his work is informing, you know, conservation genetics work, meaning how many clones we should have representative but we right now we don't have that capacity with all of our core collections it's something we'd like to sure. pursue so it's it's something we think about all the time
0: yeah and i can imagine when you start to tease apart the things you just have to consider and think about you know timing is a big issue having the ability to implement this and the space to do it but you know you can quickly see how the conservation dollars being as thinly spread as they are and how little of that gets allocated to plants can make this a significant challenge. Sure, and conservation horticulture, as we
1: call it, is kind of the center of this, right? It's the linchpin. Because we have to be able to grow these plants in our collection. Mm. Um, And a lot of these plants, whether they're kind of specialty aeroids in the tropical collection, (laughs) carnivorous plants, you know, we got Darlingtonia growing in like frigid water, recycled water. (laughs) You know, all of these plants require like very dedicated specialists. So I think it starts there with the horticulturalists. And then once we can keep these plants alive and propagate them, yeah. then we could start to kind of layer on um, some of these tools we've talked about so, so that we can propagate them and disseminate them. Um, and sh- ultimately, we want to share these plants with other gardens right. and develop these protocols that we can share. So hopefully they can be helped in the in nature.
0: Yeah. And I mean, again, the the emphasis here of being able to grow said plants, I mean, that is I think learning how to grow plants is one of the most important skills humanity has ever stumbled upon. But this is where I think when people want to get involved but feel limited by their access to education or even just the vagaries of the job market, if you're a hobbyist that knows how to do things, like share that information, right? Like write it down, tell someone, join a club, teach others how to do it because if you... Are the I wouldn't be surprised how many people are probably the only ones specializing in a niche group. And they are probably unbeknownst to themselves, the world experts on how to grow them perfectly.
1: Undoubtedly, undoubtedly. And I've seen that again and again. We tend to be a melting pot. We tend to be a really nice um, focal point where people can come to us these people you're mentioning, because we'll have all the plant societies here through the year. Nice. We just had the Calivia Society. Here. Oh boy! Later we'll have different orchid <laughs> groups. We'll have the cactus and succulent society. And when they come here, these people kind of follow. Mm-hmm. These people are part of these groups, and you do meet these people that are experts in their field. um And I'm hoping, you know, this this is another subject, but just plant societies and who's the next generation is in that society, right? Right. But but I hope that information is being transmitted. I know here. It's important for us to have apprenticeship and mentorship programs. So if we have a staff member that's really a specialist in a certain field and they're getting ready to age out and go into retirement, hmm. that we have someone coming up that's actually um, capitalized on you know learning from them so that we don't lose that information. Yeah. And that's true across all of our divisions, I think, but especially with the botanical division, we have so many niche groups where we have someone that's maybe been working with them for almost 40 years. We right. have to get someone else with them so that... That that collection is, you know, safeguarded as we move forward.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you think of how easy it is to just, yeah, I'll write it down later. <laughs> <laughs> and the later's 40 years later, oops. <laughs> like, but the, the idea of just reaching out to that next generation, I'm always trying to think of silver linings to global catastrophes like a pandemic. And I'm hoping, 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 hoping that everyone turning to gardening and and houseplants and cultivation in that way spurs that next generation, spurs those people to go, oh, there's a lot more digital ways to interface with societies or now that we're kind of getting back to things in a way, maybe that interaction can happen face to face at some point. And, uh, you know, that's to me where that next group is going to come from, because I think a lot of people realized I'm really not happy with what I'm doing. Where can I take my passion in a way that is, you know, able to support myself? And this is one way to think about it. I hear that quite a bit i hear that from friends mm. that are professionals in other
1: fields and they're they always say you know how did you get into that like how does that pay you know pay the bills you know and they're like <laughs> yeah. they're like that's so awesome that you work with plants and it's it's true that we need people that take an interest that love plants we just need more plant lovers on the planet um and in terms of finding that next generation i think sh- sharing your enthusiasm with just people around you like you're doing your podcast is so effective oh, in that nice. i think you know um I I try to get my kids excited if I can. I I know sometimes it's hard, but when I'm gardening, I try to invite them to pull weeds with me and get excited if I see something. Um, uh, And and here at the Huntington, we have diverse audiences, and that's important. Right now, we're working. We teach botany classes to community college level students. Nice. That's a really important age because they haven't quite decided what they want to do yet, and they're knocking out a GE. But they get they get to come to the Huntington and take a botany class where they're able to really engage in a world class plant collection and. You know, I always wonder, I never know just how many of those 30 students you're touching that yeah. are going to go on and pursue some sort of a career, you know, where they end up like you, you know, where they're <laughs> a plant ecologist. So it's like, yeah, you know, you know.
0: Yeah. And that's another thing I like to emphasize is just how multifaceted this work can truly be. I mean, if you're into programming and computers, you could still have a hand in conservation. There's a ton of database management out there. There's softwares to be developed. There's apps, you know, there's different ways if you like the the more tangible side of database like herbarium work that's important you know it, it, there's it, it's not a one size fits all sort of career trajectory and there's a lot of especially nowadays you different ways you can tackle this sort of stuff and and to be able to come to a world class garden and see the stuff you have i mean there is stuff in your collections that i had dreamt about seeing and was like i'll never get to that continent in the foreseeable future and boom there it was i mean just the the fortune to have such amazing collections of very robust and healthy looking plants it, it, it's exposing people to more than just like for me it was you know little mustards we experimented with uh in sure. grade school and like that was cool but like i don't know a, a giant uh protea is way more interesting to me than a little mustard personally I'm gonna get yeah, some hate mail for that one. <laughs> what I love
1: is that many of these plants are there because they're beautiful in the landscape. And when you ask the people why they come to the to the Huntington, many of them want to see that the beauty. They want to see the right. garden. They want to get lost. They want to escape, and that's great. But what what's so remarkable is that the plants that make up that beautiful landscape actually are pieces of a collection. Mm. You know, they're accessioned. We track them. There's data with them. Many of them have stories to tell. So I I just I love how we can accomplish more than one thing. We can display right. a beautiful historic garden and we can at the same time fill it with things that are scientifically very important yeah. to keep, keep alive. So um, it's a great position to be in. We're very fortunate. Um, but yeah, I, I I sometimes go out in the garden and I forget, I have to pinch myself. You know, <laughs> It is an incredible place to work and you see new things all the time. And I'm constantly learning, learning about new plants. Yeah. So we, we have one of the largest living plant collections in the world. I believe it's the second broadest. Wow. And um, and so there's always something new. And so I there's bet. always something to bring into the office and share with with a colleague. It's it's tremendous.
0: Yeah, talk about never getting bored. I mean, the scale that plants operate on means you could probably go sometimes 5-10, maybe even multiple decades before a plant decides it wants to try to flower again or something to that effect. And so it truly is you you, you don't get jaded. You don't get bored in this field. You learn something new potentially every step you take outside.
1: That's right. Just this week, we had a plant that hadn't flowered on us in 20 years. Dang. And, and since we've had it, a Dracaena from Madagascar. Oh, cool. And so it just flowered. And I'm sorry to say I made a herbarium voucher. <laughs> <laughs> <It's>,
0: <laughs> but, you know, yeah. so I could try to key it out. It's part of but the, the science. Point right? here is, yeah,
1: <laughs> the point here is this it, it was incredible that it took that long. Yeah. And uh, that's sometimes kind of the, you know, that's just the, the world we live in. And, um, you know, we have another person that's coming to our collection every week. She's a postdoc at UCLA and she's studying pineapple flowers, you know, and we're the surprisingly, we're the place in Los Angeles where she can get pineapple flowers reliably. (laughs) That's rad. (laughs) And she's studying how nectaries develop in monocots and from a genetic standpoint. And so I just love that we have so many different people can use our collection, right? We have artists come and use our collection besides the people that paint them, you know, all, different people are coming in and utilizing our collections in different ways. We've had artists that have taken um, an interest in dye plants, right? Plants hmm. in our collection that were used traditionally by as dye plants. And so wow. there's so many angles you can take. It's
0: Yeah. I mean, plants have touched humanity since the beginning. So yeah, the, the amount of <laughs> slices you could take off of that. And then you go for the multi-millions of years of history that they have, and and it's just un. Fathomable how much you still have yet to learn at any stage of your career. But, you know, thinking of from the conservation standpoint of just exposure to this stuff, and you mentioned sort of narratives, different things you could learn. It's always so tragic to me to see gardens that are thinking of just revenue space, uh, areas to have a wedding, to do something, you know, an event. And, oh, yeah, we also grow some plants. But, To bring people into a garden that's beautiful, well-designed, well-landscaped, and then be able to tell these stories, expose them to species that they would either have to work really hard to see in their native habitat, travel great, often uh, restrictive distances to go and see in the wild somewhere. I mean, having exposure and being able to tell these stories and say, hey, plants can actually be endangered. You wouldn't believe how many times people, I didn't know plants could be endangered. There's so many of them. We've got so much more work to do, and exposure is a big part of that. And botanical gardens are perfectly situated for that sort of exposure. Right. And I realize that we also have
1: to, you know, we have to bring money in to support these programs. Right. Yeah. We have to have members that believe in our cause. We have to have revenue that comes in from events. That's just that's just how it works. So the question is how do we tell these stories in a way that's interesting we can try to grab large sections of the public. Yeah and communicate that what we're doing is important to us as an institution. And um, I think we will re- continue to reach people as we expand those efforts. Um, we're members of other gardens in Los Angeles, my family, nice. and we participate in these you know, holiday events and so forth. Um, and I, I do think there's still potential there, untapped potential to kind of pair those with, with maybe a, a slightly different story of, you know, check out this plant in our collection. And, and where these resources might get funneled into. Um,
0: yeah, and this is where yeah. I think bringing in different specialties and expertise is another call to action for people that might not have plant knowledge, but have marketing knowledge, have That's right. event yeah. planning knowledge to get creative about this sort of stuff because it doesn't have to be, I guess that was the point I'm trying to make, it doesn't have to be this or that. It could be this and that, and it can look beautiful, and people can appreciate it, as you just outlined, for a multitude of different reasons, but all of this centered on plants really, really matter. (laughs) (laughs) Right.
1: Um, I I think stay tuned. I think we're (laughs) going to (laughs) continue to do that at the Huntington. I love it. Yeah. And I'm part of the garden community. So I will continue to advocate for this as as I stay in the community.
0: And so in a position like yours, in a climate like yours, I could see sort of getting very excited about a lot of different things. How other than just the, uh, the, the the sort of surface level of prioritizing and making sort of a checklist, how many boxes is this check? I could just see you getting lost in possibilities there. And so when do you start and how do you personally start to narrow in on things that are potentially interesting, worth exploring a little bit more detail or things you're definitely going to hit the ground running on?
1: Right. So that's the process question. It's one we're still fine tuning, but we started with, that we're a collections-based institution. So what are those collections that we've had historical ties with?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And sometimes they started with aesthetics, but now maybe we have a collection of a certain plant group. That's like, you know, one of the best, like anthurium, we have like a really globally hey. important collection of anthurium, wow. you know, in our, in our greenhouses. Um, and maybe it wasn't intended to do that when we started <laughs> it. But the point now is now aeroid is actually a core, core working group for us. How lucky. Us, the Aeroids. <laughs> that's awesome. So, But yeah, but so when we have these groups and we've identified them, then we just say, well, at least from my point of view, are these groups in trouble in the wild? You know, Mm -hmm. are they losing their habitat? You know, are they narrow endemics for whatever reason, whether from poaching or they're naturally narrow because they they just they have a substrate that's so niche. And once we figure out what those plants in our collection then the next step is kind of going to the literature and seeing like, well, is it someone working with this group? Hmm. You know, who, who's studying this right now? And I think that's how we're approaching things. It has to be a collection we're invested in
0: yeah. and then
1: it has to be a group that has a demand and the demand has to be clear and transparent. Uh, um, and usually that's, you, you can determine that once sure. you, you ask around in the, you know, who the, like with the aeroids, you can talk to Tom Crote, Missouri <laughs> yeah. Botanical Garden, and he'll tell you oh, that yeah. no one's working on this group, right? <laughs> From a taxonomic standpoint, right. but he can also say that no one's growing this plant. And so you can work on you know, methods on, again, going back to that conservation horticulture theme, propagating it and disseminating it to the gardens so that you're not the only one growing it. And I think that's an important point to come back to. But yeah, the process of figuring out which plants to work on, I think that's, that's going to be something we continue to refine mm-hmm. here. I, I'm very happy with what we have now, because when you look at it, we're working with so we have a f- kind of a f- domestic field program connected to our herbarium hmm. where we're working with oaks, Southwestern oaks from New Mexico and Arizona. We're working right now with fraxinus. We're working Ooh, with ash. Nice. And we're working with the U.S. Forest Service on that. And we're banking seed on that so that Good. hopefully they can find some resistance before emerald ash borer, you know, comes further West. <sighs> yeah. Uh, so we're working with, you know temperate woody plant groups there. We continue to work with magnolia and now we're turning our focus with magnolia to some of the tropical species down in Colombia that would really, the exceptional species, as mm. we mentioned, that would really benefit from new technology and in, in propagating them. Um, we continue to work with, uh, let's see, that's magnolia. Um, and then we, ha- we have a historic interest in agave and aloe <laughs> here in the desert collections and cacti. Yeah. And um, if we can, Continue, you know, think about agave. Some of them bloom once every twenty years, so maybe it's an (laughs) exceptional species because you go to the field and you just don't see seed reliably because, like, their monocarpic life cycle or whatever. So, um, I think we'll continue to chase some really rare agaves and aloes. Really working with partners in the host countries so that hopefully they can use this technology on the ground. Um, And if they don't see a seed, maybe they can collect a little piece of stem tissue and then initiate it into the tissue culture program. Nice. Follow the recipe that we develop. And that, that's my hope.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: but uh, going back to your question again, process, I, I think we have enough plant groups already. I think if we do expand out, <laughs> we'd like to work with orchids and camellias because those are historic groups for us. Sure. And with cycads, we're already working with cycads. We have a pollen bank that we use for breeding. Nice. Um, we have a dried tissue bank that we're sharing genetic resources with other people. Particularly, it's, it's good with New World cycads and um, we've done some in tissue culture going back there. We've done some work working with embryos. Ooh, so wow. if you have a seed that maybe won't be viable, you can actually open it up, dissect it, and take the embryo out, embryo rescue. And we've done that with oaks and <sighs> cycads in some cases. And that's, wow. I think, it's promising. All, yeah. all of it takes effort, but.
0: Embryo we, rescue? We've kind
1: of. <laughs> embryo rescue. Yeah, we've <laughs> dabbled with that with oaks and cycads. That's wild. Yeah. And we have these great partners that are willing to like share information with us. We've yeah. worked with the Cincinnati Zoo and um, USDA Fort Collins, uh, you know, and th- these are the people that are really pioneering this work. And we're just grateful to be part. San Diego Zoo Global, all of these organizations, I think, are are doing such great work. And we're like a research networked partner, yeah. Um, and we're
0: trying to work in a group that they're not working on, or at least contribute to their knowledge. Um, so. Yeah, that is—it's good. I love to hear that processes are kind of ongoing and evolving because if you get stuck in one way, you're going to be out of date pretty soon. It's point. kind of like
1: multitasking. We didn't choose one path. Like <laughs> I'm glad we did stick just to Camellia, right? We chose a bunch of things, and yeah. whatever we found progress on, we we pursued. It would. It probably would benefit from being more methodical. Hmm. And I think again, that's a process question. Uh, perhaps it was a bit opportunistic but sure. nonetheless i think these are worthy conservation questions we're we're approaching yeah. whether through uh, the field work the tissue culture lab seed bank um, or even just keeping these plants alive in our living collection
0: right. I, right again i
1: think that's where it starts
0: adaptive approaches right i mean you got to yeah. you got to be realistic but also leverage and leveraging the expertise of others is a great thing you mentioned tom Crowett, but that could be replicated across the plant kingdom because you know, I don't know who's working with what. You don't know who's working with what all the time. And what is or isn't in cultivation? What is in desperate need? I mean, this is where pulling on that expertise, going back to even societies, people that know who's growing. Maybe they know the three people in the world that are growing tree-like irises. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> so who right. are so these people? All about How hunters. do we talk to them, right?
1: <laughs> and in the Huntington's well-positioned. Yeah. Because we, we're kind of a... Think about it, we're we have a library, we have an art museum, we have these botanical gardens. So we have a, it's we're like a cultural hub in Los Angeles. So it's a yeah. great place, kind of like an epicenter to draw these people in and, and figure out who's working on what. If we can open our doors that way and facilitate that knowledge transfer, I think mm-hmm. that's a that's a huge, huge role we can play.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Exciting too. But you mentioned your Ethereum collection is globally important. And from sort of an insider baseball perspective, how do you even start to assess where individual taxonomic say collections are at in a in any given botanical garden? Like, where do you start to look to even ask that question? Is it globally important? And then, what does it mean to be a globally important collection?
1: Right. So it comes back to partnerships. We we work with BGCI. We work very closely with them, and they have a. A program called Plant Search, would you mm. may be aware of. And when you do plant search, you can put in all the Ethereum taxa that are known and it will say which gardens are growing them. And it actually includes data from private collections, believe it or not. Oh, wow. So a, pri- a private individual, if they choose, can enter the data. Nice. So that you have some sense of who's growing it. And what you do is you get a filtered list back that says you're the only institution we know of that's growing it. And when that's the case, that's a unique taxon. Hmm. And that and the scary part is is you know, we're sitting on Thirteen thousand unique taxa here at the Huntington. <laughs> oh man! You know more than just Anthurium, but it comes back to this idea: is we're relying on a, a third party, in this case Botanical Gardens Conservation International, to have a, a a system to tell us what part of our collection maybe we should be looking at more closely, right? Yeah. Maybe we should be prioritizing. Um, and and a lot of it is, you know, we were fortunate to know people working on Anthurium. If we didn't, like you said, like if it was another plant group, I don't know where we'd start. I think we would. Reach out to the general public and say, or when I say general public, like plant search and say, who's sure. working on this group and what do you know? Who's growing this? Yeah, um,
0: that's a cool perspective. And there, with the the situation you just described of sitting on thirteen unique, thirteen thousand unique taxa, those moments have to feel like you've just been walking around with a briefcase all day. And at the end of the day, you figured out there was a bomb in there, and you're like. Whoa, that could have been really bad. So these moments where you, you come up against something and go, wow, we need to do something quick, I guess. that's It's got to be right. a unique moment.
1: <laughs> right. So again, we want to propagate and disseminate these. We can't be the only one sitting on these. And we, we, we do a really good job sharing material. We just got to continue that. And we got to, I think, prioritize and focus, at least from my perspective, I'd like to work on those plant groups that are, you know... Threaten in the wild. I'd like to start there. Uh that that probably has greater impact if we start there as compared to like a cultivar. You know, some of those 13,000 are right, cultivars of roses. Sure, sure. We're, we're like the only one growing. And and going back to that, you know, we were growing a rose. I was talking to our rose garden curator. He cannot source this rose rose anywhere anymore. Wow. Anymore. Meaning he doesn't know anyone that's growing it. And it's this little miniature, you know. I don't know if you've huh. seen miniature roses yeah, you can yeah. get it at the store. They're cute. There's a whole, you know, uh, culture of miniature roses. He said if you could somehow figure out how to propagate this in tissue culture, you know, that'd be a really huge plus. And we did, and that was not that was another nice use of nice. the, the program. In this case, working with a a cultivar, but still yeah. kept it kept it in the trade. All we're gonna do is multiply it and get it out there. Right. So this miniature rose doesn't go away. This particular one. But,
0: and that's something I'm appreciating more and more as I get into gardening more and more, right. Is, is I'm more of a species person at the end of the day, conservation to me means a lot of what's going on in the wild, but you know, humans have been doing a lot of really interesting work on crops on just pretty things, you know, and and a lot of that, if the person doing it doesn't keep it going, it's gone once that, that last individual dies. And I'm sure that's happened time and time again, across plant groups, across gardens, where a person got in, had a niche interest, developed some really interesting stuff, and then, man, no one really took it up. So I I would like to hear, do you, like, That's that happens a lot, right, in the cultivar variety world, and that stuff is equally worth being interested in and working towards doing better for.
1: Yes, and so I think of our camellia collection, our orchid collection, our rose collection. These are big cultivar collections for us, really important cultivar collections, but they're also but a little bit at the whim of our curator because the if a curator stays for 20 or 30 years it's going to grow in areas that are, are historically important and or, and or of interest to the curator and there are going to be cultivars that are going to you're going to lose hmm. right you know in the end of the day you're going to lose a plant so no plants live forever forever so you need to really prioritize which cultivars you have duplicates of and um and who you share them with We think about this quite a bit. Um, Yeah, Yeah. we have camellias where we know, for instance, we're sitting on Belgian, I say, keep sitting, we're growing (laughs) Belgian camellias (laughs) that came into the country in the turn of the century and Belgium wants them back because they've lost lost them all because of disease, but we're having a hard time with phytosanitary issues, getting them back. Mm -hmm. But that's one of the reasons, one of the impetus for trying to get into tissue culture is to get these Belgian camellias back to the national collection back in Belgium. Wow. because they've lost them. yeah And if they can lose some of their you know prized hybrids, it could be happening with tulips, it could be happening with roses. It can happen with any group, any niche group um, or orchids. So it's the same thing when we can we divide an orchid and we share it with someone. Hmm.
0: Um, yeah, I mean the stuff that haunts wild populations, you know a hurricane takes out the last toa population or something to that effect that can happen to collections too disease. Yeah. turnover and staff just simply forgetting you know yep and that's that sharing thing coming back it's so important to disperse these collections whether it's a cultivar or one of the rarest plants in the world propagate it and share it right um fully on board <laughs> yeah <laughs> right on and so with that in mind when you're thinking about like what you think about day in and day out that was redundant but <laughs> you know you have a passion for this you're stuck in you live it but you have get people coming in and out of your doors every day a bunch of people that maybe they like just pretty things maybe they just want to go for a stroll what in the context of conservation and and living collections at botanical gardens like yours what are the things that you think really need to be spoken about in more detail or at least emphasized a little bit more to really get the public thinking about the importance of living collections and just plant conservation in general
1: Yeah. So that's awareness. And just so you know, we're we're asking ourselves the same things, you know, how to best communicate (laughs) with a variety of audiences. Um, Obviously, we have web content, we have symposia, we facilitate hands-on workshops and or demonstrations of certain plant groups. So I think we're trying to engage people at different levels and, and we communicate fairly good at that. But if we can broaden that and let people know, you know, there's a mass extinction going on and, mm. you know, for instance, cacti, one out of every three cacti is, is you know, threatened in the wild. Yeah. Um, I think it has to be tied with stories. And I keep coming back to storytelling. Right. You have to have an interesting story. And I think that's going to grab those people that would just say, yeah, okay, you know, cacti, like other animals are going extinct. What am I going to do about it? You know, Um and so i think more and more it comes back to storytelling and i think about that the longer i've been here the more i think about trying to grab stories that i can maybe put in my pocket and pull out at a certain time when yeah. the, when the time is right maybe there's you know just a, my gut instinct says to tell the story um and i think that's how we're going to really lure people in totally i think and there are some great stories as you might imagine yeah
0: endless i mean especially if you spend any time in the literature and start synthesizing there's there's bits and pieces everywhere you're just putting them together but it's encouraging to hear that because what shifted my mind towards plants was realizing that they weren't you know my the the approach was always just very human-centric food medicine that sort of thing or parts the anatomy the biology that kind of thing but when people started telling me stories about plants the way they tell stories about the behavior of a cheetah or mm-hmm. you know some other charismatic megafaunal sort of thing like you see on these nature documentaries. A light switch turned on in my head, and I've never looked back. And I think that plants desperately need that. Hundred percent. for For me, I've also tried to find those stories that also
1: play into our own history here at the Huntington or human culture. You know, plants and human culture. And and two stories I can think of in, in particular are one is is the fact that we're sitting on a lot of cacti. You know, came into the country over 100 years ago. They were found to be new species in our garden and described. These cacti were described by a German botanist who took them back to Berlin and the entire collection was bombed during World War II. Whoa. Well, the, all of those living plants, many of them are still alive at the Huntington today. The type specimens are still in <laughs> our collection. And so there's a really interesting story about going back and retypifying those plants, right? Wow whether or not the taxonomy holds now, but yeah. still there's value in creating those vouchers again, lectotypification, right? And and figuring out, you know, just putting a name to a specimen again. Sure. Um, and the reason, of course, those were gone was because of you know, the frailties of mankind. You know, yeah. We're going to Yeah, geopolitical. Yeah. yeah. And there's another story of, a, of, a, of an Apuntia in our garden that was collected on the battlefield a year after... The Mexican-American War,
0: Jeez. and
1: you know, in the 19th century, a year after the date on the battlefield, a botanist went out and swept the battlefield and <laughs> found this Sapuntia and it became the type. And we have that in our collection. So I, I think it's important to find those stories when there's a, yeah. when there are human human ties to the to the plant, um,
0: especially if they're still alive. I mean, that just it, when they can span generations, I think people go. wow.
1: What?
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's remarkable. Sean, this has been really awesome, really insightful to kind of get a look behind the scenes of what people are thinking about in terms of plant conservation at gardens. And that, again, spans the spectrum from wild species to cultivars. I really appreciate it. If people want to find out more about what is going on at the Huntington Library, Art Museum and Botanical Gardens, where do you recommend they go looking?
1: You can start on their website. So that's uh, www.huntington.org. And then you can navigate from there. There's a botanical collections portion, and you can learn about some of our existing plant distribution programs, including one I haven't mentioned yet. That's our International Succulent Introductions, that's our ISI program. You could find that, and that's one way. We do conservation horticulture we propagate rare and endangered cacti nice. and we try to flood the market with those so people don't go out and get them by other means Beautiful. That's the, yeah that's the that's the short way of saying what we try to do with that program and it's been I going on it. since the 50s it's not a it's not a new concept nice um, and so the, you can learn all about that on our web page and we do hope to retool our web webpage and put some more information out there in the upcoming months.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you again for taking the time to talk with us. I really appreciate it. I think this is fascinating insights into a world. A lot of people don't have exposure to, and hopefully we've ignited some fires and gotten people uh, wanting to get involved in more than one way. And damn, go visit. If you've never been, it is one of the most beautiful gardens in the world, hands down. So tell your colleagues to keep up the great work. Thank you, Matt. It's been a real pleasure. Again, I love your podcast. Thank you. Please keep it up. I'm Do what I can. happy to be here. Awesome. Well, in the meantime, hang in there, stay healthy, and uh, yeah, just just keep being an advocate for plants. We appreciate it. Thanks, Matt. I'll Cheers. See you soon. Bye. All right, that wraps up another fascinating conversation. I thank Sean for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us, and I mean it. Check out the Huntington Library, Art Museum, and Botanical Gardens. You will not be disappointed. Their website is great, but their grounds are even better. It is so beautiful. So many cool plants. And, and dedicate the time because it's not something you can cover in a day. But yeah, plant conservation and botanical gardens, these things need to go hand in hand. They can't just be event spaces for weddings and musical events. They have to also be places to connect people to plants. It's vital. And it doesn't have to be an either or situation. We can indulge, right? So once again, check the show notes for this episode over at indefensiveplants.com podcast for all of the relevant information as well as all of the links for every previous episode. That's where you'll find them. Also, please consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash plants or by picking up a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch, or stickers. And all of those links are also in the show notes, so you don't have to work to find them. But that is it for me this week. I thank you all for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button. But until the next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.